0: Hey, it's David Merriman Scott here. I'm the author of eleven books, including Fanocracy, which is my newest book about how to build brands by building fans. And none other than Brandon Brands is got a great podcast, and I'm a guest. And I'd love for you to take a moment to listen to it.
1: In a world where advertising is ignored business is exposed and the only constant is change how do you build a brand that matters welcome to brands on brands on brands a home for those who think different and push their boundaries this is where branding that matters lives now here's your host brandon burkmeyer
2: Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Brands on Brands on Brands. I'm Brandon Berkmeyer, your personal marketing coach, and I believe that building brands that matter is the only way for a brand and a business to thrive tomorrow. Thank you guys for tuning in. As always, it's been a great ride. I appreciate you. I always appreciate you connecting and letting me know what you think. And as always, go to the website, brandonbrands.com and connect. Find a way to engage with me, engage with my community, and just continue to be a part of the journey with us. Today's guest has been uh, someone I really wanted to talk to for a while here. He's got a book that just came out called Fanocracy. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, His name is David Meerman Scott, and he's an internationally acclaimed marketing and sales strategist, author, and keynote speaker. spoken on several different continents Forrest Magazine said that he's one of those select few people who saw and understood the social media phenomenon as it began. And now he's here talking about how fandoms can be built into the community, into the fabric of your business, so that you can figure out how to connect better with your customers and build your stronger brands and businesses and move them forward. He actually has authored 10 books, authored and co-authored 10 books. Three of them were international bestsellers. One that stands out the most, it's on its sixth edition now. Has called The New Rules of Marketing and PR, has been translated into 29 languages, and is used as text in hundreds of universities and business girls worldwide. This is the talk today. I'm telling you guys, just lots of knowledge, lots of things you can implement directly into your business. And no one's talking about this. No one's talking about how to take your customers, tap into the things that they're passionate about, and build that commonality, that, that shared meaning, that shared experience, build their businesses around that as a way to better communicate. Today, we talk about that. We answer lots of questions about the book, fanocracy, and really get into why this is something that's important for your business. So I know you're going to love it, as I do. Check it out and enjoy. Brandon Brands. All right, let's get going. Today, welcome to our guest on the show. Very excited to bring you David Meerman Scott. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on today. I really appreciate having you.
0: Oh, it's really great to be here. I can't wait to talk with someone whose name is Brand. <laughs> <laughs> I, know it's brand yeah. I, I know it's Brand, but it's just like amazing to have that coincidence.
2: So Yeah, exactly. It's, you got to lean into what you got, right? Exactly. But the reason I wanted to, I'm excited to talk to you well, there's a lot of reasons, first off, but for a lot of my guests that come in, we dig into you know, some very specialized expertise, such as you know Instagram content creation or generating leads with blog content. But every now and then, I have the pleasure of getting a little more philosophical. Now, some people may not like that word, but what I mean is that we get to dig into some bigger business ideas and then break them down into actionable advice for entrepreneurs out there, business owners. And the idea we're going to talk to talk about today comes from your new book, Fanocracy, Turning Fans into Customers and Customers into Fans. And that drops, or will have dropped, January 7th of 2020. Can you lay out for listeners, what is fanocracy and why is it important?
0: Sure. Absolutely. So a little bit of backstory. I've written um, so far 11 books. Fanocracy is my 11th book. My earlier books, most of them were about online marketing. So my most famous for a book called The New Rules of Marketing and PR originally came out in 2007, is now in the sixth edition, has sold 400,000 copies in English and is in 29 languages from Albanian to Vietnamese. So people listen to me when it comes to online marketing. But I've spoken with thousands of people over the last five years, and I'm consistently hearing from people that they're getting disappointed with so many companies who are doubling down with things like spam and things like bots and just ways of communicating that aren't human. And I believe that the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of superficial online communications at a time when we're just so eager for true human connection. And many of us have human connections in our personal lives with things that we're fans of. And I recognize that there's an opportunity to take this idea of fandom and make it a business prescription.
2: Now, I think for a lot of people out there, and I, lo- I love the topic, first off, if you, if, if for the people that have been around and listened to the show for a while, my very first episode was with Mark Schaefer, and he wrote a book called hum- Marketing Rebellion, The Most Human Company Wins. And just like that, this really speaks to me because it, it is about making that more human connection and finding a way to communicate more one-to-one and, and build people from the ground up, build communities. Why is that idea of fandom, where did that come from? How did that idea come to you? And then and why now? Like, why did this topic like resonate with you?
0: Right now, why now? Um, I've been spending five years studying this because I recognized five years ago that we're entering a new phase in marketing. And you know, because you've been doing marketing for a long time as well, like I have, you know, in, in the early days of marketing, it was broadcast. Uh, one way magazines, newspaper, radio, television, brands telling you what to think. And there really wasn't any two way. Uh, the web, um, starting in 1995, that's my line in the sand because that's when Netscape went public. But from 1995 onwards, we had two way real time communication, social networks, and so on. I believe we're entering a new phase. I believe we're entering a phase around humanity. And the idea of fandom as a way of approaching humanity came to me five years ago when I was driving with my daughter, um, Reiko. She's now actually my co-author on the book, but and she's 26 now, but she was 21 years old at the time. And I said, what's up with the fact that I've been to 75 Grateful Dead concerts? <laughs> and she said, that's not, that's not so weird. What's up with the fact that I've just finished an 80,000-word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix, and I put it on a fan fiction site for free, and there's been thousands of people who have downloaded and hundreds of people who have commented on it. And why do I get dressed up every year and go to Comic-Con? What's up with that? And we realized that we are certainly not unique, that we have these obsessive fandoms. And I recognized, we both recognized that this idea of fandom is incredibly powerful. 75 Grateful Dead concerts, that's ridiculous. And so the idea of fandom became something that we decided to dig into to understand how brands can tap that.
2: Well, I love the idea of sharing a little bit behind the scenes too, especially if you're a personal brand or you're someone who represents your business and people getting to build connection of that. But I do want to tap into what you touched on here for a second. You wrote this book with your daughter. Not a lot of people can say that. And I I, I want to know what that meant to you. I have a daughter myself and just that seems like a dream to me, but I could also see how that could be challenging. So what did it mean to you to be able to do this with her?
0: Yeah, it was awesome in every single way. So we're obviously different in the two ways that you immediately recognize. We're we're different generation, and also she's a woman, and I'm a man. So those are clearly different. Uh, we also have very different fandoms. So I mentioned some of mine, and I have the exact same idea of what fandom is and how important it is to our life and the fact that some of our best friends are the people who share fandoms with us. But we share different fandoms. A couple of other things are she's mixed race. So she has that unique perspective on life. And then also, you know, I did a liberal arts degree at Kenyon College and she did a neuroscience degree at Columbia and is now a fourth year medical school student. So she came at the idea of fandom from a neuroscience perspective. We actually interviewed neuroscientists about what goes on in the brain when you become fans of something. And that's just one part of the book, but a a very unique part of the book. So writing with my daughter, because on one hand, we had the same ideas of fandom, but on the other hand, we're utterly and totally different. You know, one millennial, one baby boomer, man, woman, you know, so on, worked out fabulously well. We tended to edit each other's work. We tended to share the interviews that we did. I mean, it really worked out brilliantly. And it it brought us closer together. And that was an unexpected massive benefit that, you know, we were communicating literally every single day for five years of, on this, and still are every single day going forward on this book project. And it's brought us together really, really um, significantly.
2: What I like too is y- you actually call out in the chapters, you know, this chapter by David, this chapter by raiko And it actually helped me like picture you in these situations because you give a lot of personal examples, especially when you talk about your fandoms. And it yeah. helps me really connect. It helps me, you know, if maybe I'm not, you know, I like I'm kind of in the middle of the generations between you two. So, you know, yeah. maybe Grateful Dead, you know, is a little bit past my time. But like her getting it, talking about the, the Harry Potter connections and, and some of that fandom was interesting. Like, that, you know, so and I think a lot of us can pick from different places. But it was funny that you actually identified me, her, because it helps us understand the voice of the author.
0: And and that was a big challenge, to be honest with you. We, um, We made some false starts. We wrote a significant part of the book trying to iron out our personalities and write from one voice. And it just proved to be too much of a problem to do it that way. And we ended up reverting back to this idea of each of us sharing chapters. And I think From what we've heard from early readers of the book that that's worked out really well. So I'm glad, I'm glad that we ended up doing that. And then as you say, you can relate to the things I talk about with my fandoms and, and the thing that things that Reiko talks about with her fandoms because you're able to see who wrote what. And so I'm actually really happy we ended up doing it that way, but it did take a long time to get to the point where we agreed that that was the thing that made the most sense.
2: Yeah. And it's not something that you see a lot out there. I don't, I don't know a lot of books if they're like that. Of course, I don't read a ton of books, so there's maybe a bunch like that, but that was great to see that for the first time. I do want there to get- are a, please.
0: There are a lot of co-authored books, but very few do it this way where they identify who wrote what chapter.
2: Yeah. And I do want to get into what those chapters were about. There are, you know, nine steps that you guys identify in terms of how to create this idea of a fanocracy. You know, I'm a huge fan of community building around your business. Two of the steps that in that approach that that I that stood out to me that I'd love to ask you about that you outlined were, you know, they seemed valuable and actionable, which is what I liked about them. The first was let go of your creations. And the second was Break Down Barriers. Can you talk a little bit of what it means to let go of your creations first, and then we can get into the other one after?
0: Absolutely. So we all have ways that we relate to the things that we're a fan of. And as fans, we feel ownership over the things that we're a fan of. And not just things like say, the Grateful Dead or, or other personal things that we're, that we're interested in, but you know um, the way that we use a mo- our mobile device or the car that we drive or kind of most anything. And we consumers don't want to be told how to engage with a brand. We want to engage in the way that we're comfortable engaging. So, what we identified and the prescription that we offer to all kinds of companies, big and small and tiny, is to let people share your fandom and their fandom in the way that they want. So, I'll give you an example. Adobe makes Photoshop software, and they are very particular about the way you're allowed to use the word Photoshop. You have to put R after it Photoshop R software. You are not allowed to say something was Photoshopped. You must say this document was manipulated using Adobe R Photoshop software. And it's kind of ridiculous because people who are fans of Adobe Photoshop software are, sorry, I forgot R, Adobe R Photoshop R software feel like they're being talked down to when they're told that you cannot communicate that way. And there's a whole lot of fan sites uh, about people who are really interested in digital art. And they use Adobe products, including Photoshop, to create that art. And by saying to them, no, you can't talk this way, it absolutely limits the way that those people become fans, actively discouraging fandom. And so the opposite is that you need to just let people go with it. I'll give you an example of how you can just let people go with it and that is let people use the language that they want to use even if you believe it's wrong or your public relations people if you if you're a big bigger company believe that it's wrong um, just let it go let people communicate in, in any way that they want
2: yeah i think there's also the idea of you can you if you go in with the idea that that's what's going to happen you can set that up and give them the tools to let that potentially you can lead them down the road saying we want to hear your feedback maybe you love the garlic knots at this restaurant <laughs> you know like give them the tools that maybe they can promote that or take a funny picture of it or whatever the thing is you if you lead them down the road and encourage it you might actually create something or it creates its own thing maybe it's not the garlic knots they're like no garlic knots we actually love the spaghetti whatever <laughs> no that's a, that's absolutely right
0: absolutely and you know something as simple as sharing on instagram That's exactly right. Um, You make it easy for people uh, to share those things. I mean, we could really geek out on the different aspects of uh, what we define as as curative fandom and transformational fandom. But curative fandom is a fandom where people are really dig into the idea of the officialdom around that fandom, like statistics and data and the official line. So for example, Uh, Major League Baseball, statistics, you know, home run, how many home runs have they hit and so on. But then you've got fantasy baseball, which is a transformational fandom around the same thing. Hamilton, um, you've got the um, nonfiction history about Alexander Hamilton with all the facts and the data. And then you've got a race bent uh, retelling of Hamilton in the form of a rap play which is now one of the most popular plays in uh, the United States, of course, Hamilton, which is a transformational form of fandom. So the idea that you've got one aspect of fandom or in another aspect of fandom, neither is right nor wrong, but you should celebrate both.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it's super beneficial, too. If you have a product that lives in the physical world, that's that's something that can they can take with them and it can be... That experience is unlimited in terms of what they can do with those products. But if you're also a business that revolves around content and content is part of your business, suddenly you could see all these different ways in. And I love the idea that you kind, of the, you kind of free them to let the evolve in its own way and create its own kind of world, if you will.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Give, give, give people the freedom. That's a really good way. It's not, we didn't use those words, but that's a great way to describe it.
2: Now, the the idea of breaking down barriers, can we dig into that one a little bit too?
0: Yeah, sure. So the idea of breaking down barriers is how can you let people into your inner sanctum? How can you give them a peek at something that they're not normally able to see? How can you make them an insider? Um we've got a bunch of examples that we wrote about, and um a, a couple that just immediately come to mind is that uh for example, restaurants can provide very special kind of opportunities for people to perhaps have a chance to work with the chef and learn how a dish is prepared. Reiko and I actually went to a restaurant where they had one table that was set up in the kitchen, and it's called the chef's table in the kitchen and you can Enjoy a meal literally in the kitchen, watching them prepare those meals. One of my favorite examples of this concept is grain surfboards. Um, There is a grain surfboard right there in the corner of my office. And grain surfboards is a wooden surfboard manufacturer. They're based in York, Maine. And you can buy a grain surfboard, uh, go into their showroom, pick one out, bring it home, or order one online, get it online. But they've got two other really remarkable ways that you can buy their surfboards. Now, these are wooden surfboards that are built using a boat building technique, very proprietary, very unique. They're the only company that does it this way. They've patented it. But they've opened up so much that they'll sell you a kit to make it. It's their their proprietary um, methodology, but they'll show you exactly how to do it. And what I did was I went to their shop in York, Maine for four days and did a build your own surfboard course where you actually work in their factory and they tell you exactly how to make the surfboard. Now, most companies would say we're not going to do that because people will learn exactly how we do it and they might copy our idea. But grain surfboards said, no, it's more important for us to build fans. And the way we're going to build fans and make money by selling more kinds of surfboards is to sell these kits, and also to allow people to come to our shop and 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 learn alongside us how to build those surfboards.
2: Well, and where did that come from? Why is that important that that we let people in to see behind the scenes to you know see some of our processes? Why is that something like, I like that it's a new way for businesses that are like I don't know how to create content? Well, show them behind the scenes. But why does that help?
0: There's a number of different factors going on here. Number one. It helps people to make them feel like they're an insider. They know something that others don't. They have an experience that others don't. I have, I'm a big live music fan, and some bands have a backstage meet and greet pass that you can get. I mean, of course, if you know the band, you can get one, but there are often ways to buy one. So you know, a regular ticket is $59, but if you pay $159, you get a chance to go backstage, meet the band, get a picture. That's an experience that people really enjoy. And yes, the band makes a little bit more money, but the benefit is then people share that selfie. It's, they'll come back for more. They'll buy your album when it comes out. You know, they're a fan for life. And there's an, actually a very particular neuroscience thing going on when you are physically in the presence of people at a company. That uh, In the case of grain surfboards, for example, or the restaurant that I mentioned, or a backstage meet and greet. And that is that when we trust another person, it's the neurons in our brain are firing and saying that when those people are in close proximity to us, that the human emotional bond is much stronger than if they're far away or we don't have a chance to be in proximity with them at all. So by bringing people together, you're sharing a human emotional level that's impossible without bringing people physically together. There is an aspect of it called mirror neurons that we're doing right now, you and me, by virtually being together. We're not actually together, but I feel like I know you a little bit better now that we're doing this this podcast. And that comes from this idea of mirror neurons. So for organizations that can't bring people physically together, it's possible to use the same neuroscience technique by doing exactly what you and I are doing right now, which is having a conversation. And for those of you listening in on audio, we're actually also on video right now so we can see one another. And by having that conversation, I feel as though I know you better because I see you in a way that feels like we're actually together. That's why you feel like you know people who are movie stars and you feel like you know people who are television stars because you've seen them virtually in an up-close way and your brain tricks you into believing that you actually know them personally, so your emotions are firing in that you think you know that person but it's way more powerful if you're literally in their physical presence because then there's all sorts of other subtle cues that we humans pick up from things like scent and the subtle movements of eyes and whether the pupils are dilated and all sorts of other cues that are going on and when we are able to experience that we bond in a in a way that we can't help it it's a natural human reaction that goes back Um, many thousands of years. We learned these ideas from neuroscientists. And as a way to grow fans, that's something you can do. Something as simple as inviting people to your office when a telephone call could do, meet them in person, invite them to lunch, bring them out onto the golf course. There's a lot to be said for that kind of human interaction.
2: And I love the idea that it takes things from being strictly transactional to moving towards relationship. And you can't have a relationship right. if there's no interaction or engagement or, or give and take. And I'll tell you guys, and he, he says, yeah, we could see each other. But also, he gets to see the flubs, the nerves. Like, you know, I started this podcast off saying his name wrong. And I, instead of David Meerman Scott, I said David Scott Meerman, which is you're like the worst. You never mess up someone's name, right? But he gets to see that. And though it's a mistake and, you know, it's the worst, and it's like a little insulting, it's one of those things that, but it makes it real. Like we, we are having a real interaction here and that helps. And it just that it's easy to say, you know, what? I was very honored to have David on today. I, it's, there's only every now and then that I get to bring people in that are just rock stars that have been doing it for 10, 15 years that I've been reading coming up in marketing. But this is what makes it real. The, the ins and outs of seeing each other and having a relationship. So. I really, that resonates with me. Thank you.
0: Yeah. And I, I, after I've literally spoken with a thousand people, more than a thousand people on what they're a fan of. And I've spoken with hundreds of companies about how they build fans or don't in some cases. And I've come up with this concept that in many ways, the relationships we build with our customers are more important than the products and services that we sell to them. And so if you can understand that concept, Um, this idea of building fans is a component of that, but uh, one that there's a true prescription for uh, that we wrote about in this book, Fanocracy, that you can build a very powerful organization, whether you're an independent contractor of some kind or a dentist or a doctor or a landscape architect or uh, um, someone who's building a software company or somebody who works at a really big brand. All of those um, work. We've, interviewed people from all of those different types of organizations
2: so what i'm thinking is okay people start to hear this they, they say okay I, I can kind of get on board with this but i wonder what you know what's going to hold some companies back from taking these steps because i do think some of them are like that maybe that's not for me but what do you think is going to hold them back and how do they get through that
0: uh you know it's what's hold what's what what holds people back all the time it's fear of the unknown it's i'm too busy It's how can I build that into my routine? I've already got all these other things going on. But I like to have people look back and say, you know, back in 1995, when companies were starting to build websites, you know, probably many of your listeners are too young to remember that. I remember that period very well, but, you know, there were, I had a website really early, but there were a lot of companies that said, no, we don't need to do that. A lot of people still say, I don't need a personal website. I believe everybody needs a personal website. I, don't, I believe that you can't trust LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram with having your personal brand. I mean, they're all great. I use all of them. But my primary real estate for my personal brand is my own real estate, my own website, my own blog davidmeermanscott.com, and some other places but way back in 1995 people resisted the idea of building a website back in 2006 2007 2008 when the social networks were kicking in whether it was LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever people resisted that and i think that there's resistance to the idea that now in 2019 going into 2020 and on to beyond that we are entering an era where there's so much digital chaos that humanity is going to be the best prescription for success people are resisting that idea but they resist at their own detriment i believe
2: yeah i know i would agree i think at the end of the day the customer wins right the market speaks for itself and if the customers when they wanted more transparency in their data they they fought for that when they wanted you to be more transactional on social media they fought for that and they they fight with their dollars and they spend with the companies that are doing mm-hmm. these things. and They spend their attention with the companies that are doing these things. So I, I, I see the value in there and I hope that motivates people to take those steps. One of my favorite chapters is by raiko uh, sorry, and it's called Build Identity to Become More Than the Product. I love it because you use the Air Jordan brand as an example of one of those brands that was more than the product. It was something we aspired to. It was honestly, it was someone I looked up to growing up to the point where I named my son Jordan, and it was something I knew since did you high really? I did. Oh wow! And it was there was these things that were beyond the brand. It wasn't just the shoes. It was this determination, the, the heart of a winner, the the you know like that whole thing, and it was a lifestyle thing. So that really spoke to me. And as a business, I think anyone can aspire to this. But I I think some people might say that's that's a hard thing to catch. That's lightning in a bottle. What do you say to that?
0: Yeah, so, um, well, first of all, it's fine to like Reiko's chapters better than mine because she's <laughs> actually a better writer than I am. <laughs> she comes at, a, comes at it from a really, really interesting perspective. I think what's important about this particular chapter and this particular idea is the importance of understanding your customers as people, perhaps as individual people, if you run the sort of organization that has a very small handful of customers. But what people are like in general if you run a larger organization, so, for example, Air Jordan, they understood when they first started getting going and even now what motivations there are of their customers. They understood what those customers were like and developed products and services and messages and ideas to be able to communicate to those people. And I I believe that that's something that we can all do. What it means is we have to stop saying, I know better than you. Here's my brand and take it or leave it. But rather, really deeply understand the people that we're trying to reach. The chapter has a couple of wonderful examples of what Reiko calls narrative medicine, and she is a pioneer in this new form of medicine. She's finishing up her medical degree now, which looks at the whole person. So most medicine these days, they look at your symptoms, they provide some kind of identification of what's going on, and then give you a a potential course of action, whether it's medicine or surgery or whatever it is. What Reiko Expouses and is now practicing and literally teaches a course on at Boston University School of Medicine is the idea that you need to understand the whole person. You need to understand the entire individual. And of course, that's difficult in a 15-minute appointment that most doctors have. But there are ways that you can, as a doctor, understand what's going on with a person. So, okay, here's their physical symptoms, but what else is going on? Oh, you're going through a divorce. That must be stressful. Tell me about that. Oh, you you weren't born in this country. You're in you're from India, and um, you've got different cultural as- uh, ideas around health and and what you eat, and so on. Tell me about that. Maybe that has something to do with your illness. Those are all sorts of different aspects to that, and those ideas can then be translated to what the idea of narrative or understanding individual customers or uh, a combination of individual customers to come up with a customer profile can mean to be able to create a brand that can really resonate with people and very few organizations take the time to do that but it's an incredibly powerful thing to do.
2: Yeah, what it makes me think is, you know, if I had to give like where to start, right? Like if I'm a, if I'm an entrepreneur like, okay, I'm I'm into this idea, Man, this is this. I'll read the book. <laughs> like, what, but what, what, what are some simple steps so I could start moving the needle in the right direction?
0: I think the simplest thing uh, w- is to really dig in deep into your own self and understand for yourself what you are passionate about. So tell me, Brandon, I'm going to, this we'll do this now together. What are your biggest passions? You told me you have a family. That's great. Outside of your family, what are what are the things that are so much fun for you that you spend time and or money on that you've got really good friends who do those same things? You know, what are one or two things that you're very passionate about?
2: What's funny is reading the book, I had to start thinking about that. I was like, man, I don't, I feel like I'm not one of those people that, that does this. I don't have these, these, but, I, th- but then I dug into it, right? And it brought me back to like basketball growing up. That was a huge one. I'm still a mad, a mad Laker fan and chasing that down. And that's the one thing I can talk a lot about, even though I'm not a sports person in general. I don't do stats and all that, but it's traveled with me, even though Michael Jordan wasn't a Laker. But it, so I started with that. And then it's turned to, I think, like, pop music has been a big part of my family's relationship. Like, we've seen some Taylor Swift concerts <laughs> and, and that whole thing. So, like, there are a few things that, that, that are easier to start with, for sure. Music, sports, I think those are the ones we lean into first, usually.
0: Yeah. So, in that case, those are some of the things that you're really interested in. And so, you know, the average person, and I, I think it might be true with you, the average person began their biggest fandom when they were 12 years old. I mean, that's the average. It could be 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, whatever. But around the age that you're reaching puberty, there's something that you just dug into that for many people, they're still a fan of whatever that thing is. For me, it was the Apollo Lunar Program, which we just went through a couple of months ago, the 50th anniversary, which was fantastic. And I'm such a geek about it. I wrote a book about the Apollo Lunar Program too, and I was a contributing producer to an American experience three-part miniseries called "Chasing the Moon." So I'm really deep into Apollo, but my point in answering your question is this: As an entrepreneur, be thinking in your mind, what are those things that you're passionate about and why are you passionate about them? And then, how can you take that knowledge and passion for what you do in your personal life that you're a fan of in your personal life, and take that. And create an organization that draws people in as fans of you in the same way that you're a fan of those things. And that's entirely possible to be able to do that. Most people don't mix their personal fandom with their business life. I absolutely believe you should. And I also believe that you should learn about. What makes you a fan of something? You know, in my my case, why did I go to 75 Grateful Dead concerts? What made me such a huge fan of the Apollo Lunar Program? And how can I apply those ideas to the work I do? And that really does help me to develop fans for my business. And I have people who email me every single day and say they're a fan of mine, which is really amazing but that's partly because I'm doing exactly that. And I believe everybody can do that. You know, if you're a dentist or an accountant or a landscape architect or whatever, or or, or you're starting a new software company, people can be your fan.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And what's funny is I think my generation being, I'm 40 years old and right around that time, what you're talking about, I'm thinking back, it's like, Comic books and TV, like TV was like massively now hit scale and like the the really like the jingles, the slogans, like the theme songs are really hitting hard. And those are still things I talk about to this day. And obviously there's a massive movement behind comic book movies and that's kind of translated across generations. And all that happened around that era for for what my generation was kind of chasing at that point. So it definitely resonates with me. And what's funny, I thought this too, I have a a restaurant client of mine. He is a fish grill, right? And he has these amazing stories of how he traveled around the world on a boat and got lost and, you know, boat burned and sank. And I'm like, there's pictures on the wall, but they don't actually tell the story anywhere. I'm like, dude, this this is exactly that. People would resonate with these stories, even if they're not fishermen. You can enjoy getting to know someone even without being that same fandom.
0: Yep, that's exactly right. Absolutely right. People want to do business with passionate people. You don't have to share the passion but they love doing business with passionate people.
2: Yeah. And you mentioned a story in the book about the stickers on your computer, right? Like that, yeah, that this leads to clients, people getting to know a little bit about you. It's, it's the relationship building. Even if, if it might not be your customers sometimes, but it could be the the people that are critical to your business growing.
0: That's absolutely right. No question about it.
2: So who, and who was this person that you met because of that? The, the, I want you to tell that story a little bit about the the computer stickers.
0: Yeah, so um, so the book I mentioned earlier, The New Rules of Marketing and PR, had just come out 2007. I got an email from a couple of folks at HubSpot, and they said, um, hey, um, we just read your book. We'd like to have you come in so we can talk about what we might do together. So I went into their offices. At that point, they had eight people. And they had no customers yet.
2: And this is the biggest CRM company in the country right now. That, that, yeah, <laughs> right,
0: right. Well, and, and fast forward to now, um, they've got 65,000 customers. They have 3,000 employees. I've been on, um, And so I opened up my computer, and, and I had never met these people before. And the first minute I met them, I opened up my computer, and the CEO, Brian Halligan, said, hey, tell me about those stickers. And so I had a, I had a bunch of stickers, among them three. I had a Nantucket Island sticker. I had a, a Japan sticker and I had a Grateful Dead sticker. And so he, I said, oh, I got a house on Nantucket Island. I go there all the time. And he goes, I go there all the time too. I go there every summer. And then I said, I lived in Japan for seven years. My wife is Japanese. And he said, I lived in Japan also for a few years. And it turns out we overlapped for a short period of time. What about Grateful Dead? And I said, I've gone to a whole bunch of Grateful Dead concerts. And he said, the Grateful Dead is my favorite band. And so we ended up going to a Phil Lesh concert. He was the bassist for The Grateful Dead a week after that. And we became good friends. And he invited me to become the first member of the HubSpot Advisory Board back in 2007. Since then, we've gone to 100 shows together. We're really good friends. We've seen each other on Nantucket Island a bunch of times. And I even gave an opening speech at the Japan office opening when uh, a couple of years ago for HubSpot. I'm still on the HubSpot advisory board. I was uh, joined the HubSpot advisory board in 2007. Um, now they've uh, got 65,000 customers, 3,000 people, and $7 billion market cap. So all based on the fact that we shared the same fandom. And if I hadn't had stickers on my computer, we wouldn't have recognized that. So that is just i think emblematic of this idea that when people are passionate about something that passion shows and yes we shared the same fandoms but it didn't have to be that way he could have just said you know what's with the stickers on your computer and that's the basis for the for, for that conversation
2: i think these tools everyone can use even if it's just in your networking or in your business or in your personal brand this is huge as we're coming towards the back end of this this conversation today I do want to ask, first off, before I get to the last question, where's, where's the best place for people to find you to get to know more about the book like what's, and Fanocracy? What's, what's the best way to get a hold of you?
0: A couple of places. So there's a site, fanocracy.com. There's also davidmearmanscott.com if you want to learn a little bit more, more about me. And on the social networks, I am dmscott, D-M-S-C-O-T-T.
2: Awesome. Definitely check that out, guys. And what I want to ask is a little bit behind the curtains. How are you implementing this in your life? You have a personal brand. You're trying to get a book out, which a lot of people out there are, are trying to do that kind of stuff. How have you implemented some of this in your own business to to build that fanocracy around what you're doing?
0: So I'm doing something that's pretty interesting. I, every time I've done 11 books. Every time I do a book, I try to use one of the techniques in the book to generate attention around the book. So I live in Boston. I'm only 20 miles from the New Hampshire border, and New Hampshire, of course, being the first primary state for the U.S. presidential election. So I've traveled to New Hampshire now and actually interviewed 16 different presidential candidates. I've I've asked 16 presidential candidates what they're a fan of, and I've captured it all on video. Um, So I've got Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren and a whole bunch of other candidates on video telling me what they're a fan of. And I'm releasing those throughout. Uh, I've released some of them already. A few more coming. The book launch, of course, being right around now, January 7th, 2020. And the New Hampshire primary is in February 2020. So I thought that was kind of a cool way to do a mashup of (laughs) another concept I invented called newsjacking and the idea of fanocracy. And Um, And the presidential election, which is all converging in one moment.
2: Yeah, you got to take advantage of what's happening around you. I love that you can use even fandom as a a way to generate ideas around your business. Like there's lots of ways to apply these things. And I think if you start to read the book, you let it sink in. There's, if nothing else, you're going to find ways to better connect with your customers, way to come up with new ideas, and hopefully ways to move your business forward to, to build your brand a little bit better. Uh, anything you want any final parting thoughts you want to leave the audience with before we get going here uh
0: yeah just simply that this is fun you know this this form of marketing this idea of marketing can, can be a blast it's not hard work it's not drudgery it's not figuring out what your email subject line is it's great and i really appreciate you having me on brandon
2: oh thank you so much it's been an honor and a privilege to have you uh appreciate it and good luck with the with the book i i'll be out there supporting you and uh Thank you. To the listeners out there, if you like it, get out there, purchase it, and let me know what you guys think. All right. Thank you. Talk to you guys soon.
1: You've just taken your marketing knowledge to another level with this episode of Brands on Brands on Brands. But we have plenty more ways to not just help you build a business, but build a brand. Head over to BrandonBrands.com for more resources as well as access to our blogs, videos, and exclusive coaching sessions with your host. Be sure to visit BrandonBrands.com.